Welcome back to Vital Science and Episode 2 of our series on vaccines. Last month, Dr. Sarah Gould gave us a little background on the history of infectious disease before diving into the origins of vaccine therapeutics and the challenges of developing a safe and effective defense against viruses like COVID. If you missed that episode, I encourage you to check out our Vital Science podcast homepage, criver.com slash vital science. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you access your favorite podcasts. Today's episode is especially timely as we all prepare to enter another flu season under the continued threat of COVID-19. We may take the usual precautions against infections, wash our hands, wear our masks, practice social distancing, but probably take our body's natural defenses for granted. Dr. Christina Satterwhite is here to shed some light on the complex and extraordinary nature of the immune system. In this episode, she'll help us to understand how our body's natural barriers and cellular components work in concert to fend off pathogens without us even being aware. Ever wonder why it's so highly recommended that you get a flu shot every year? Stay tuned for an insightful answer. As one of our immunology experts at Charles River, Dr. Satterwhite is well-versed in the science of infectious disease and therapies that enhance the immune response to prevent illness or lessen its effects. She and Chris will talk about different vaccine types, how they work, and some of the therapies currently in development. I'm here with Dr. Christina Satterwhite, Senior Director of Global Lab Services from Charles River. Tina, welcome to Vital Science. Before we get into how vaccines work, can you walk us through how our immune system works and how the body defends against infection? Yes, Chris, I would be happy to do that. Um, and currently, I mean, we are talking about viruses in this country every single day. So I feel like explaining the basics of the immune system and why vaccines really are um, integral into um, ensuring that we're protected is very important for everyone to understand. So what I'll do is I'll start with how the immune system uh, essentially works in layers. You can almost think of it like the toys where you pull off the different layers of the hat. So number one is the skin. The skin is your very first barrier to any kind of um, pathogen. Again, we're talking about viruses or bacteria. So if a a pathogen gets past your skin, then the second layer would be, you know, the, the mucosa that you have um, in your nasal passages or in your um, throat. You have earwax in your ears to keep out pathogens. If essentially the pathogen gets past all of those first and second barriers, then you get into um, really the, the immune system. And typically, historically, the way that it's described is you have a nonspecific um, or what we call the innate immune system versus a specific or adaptive immune system. So the immune system is really made up of a lot of different types of cells. And so what I'll do first is talk about our innate immune system. Uh, so essentially your innate immune system when it comes to within the body is, again, the first line of defense because we have a lot of different kinds of um, cells within our immune system, such as macrophages. And if you think about what macrophages do, the best analogy is, you know, they go in and they, they really, um, almost like a, a Pac-Man, they go in and they eat up particles of uh, viruses and bacteria, and they try to, to go ahead and clear that from your body before um, there's any chance of them going any further. 
Another type of cell in your innate immune system is natural killer cells, and they're very important in um, essentially attacking viruses and cancer. They're actually uh, little cells that are equipped to go in and kill anything that the body sees as um, not self. The second line of defense is really your specific or your adaptive immunity. And this is really where um, we have a lot of um, different cell types that really contribute to fighting against um, not only uh, bacteria and viruses, but also cancer. So this portion of your immune system is made up of different cells. And what you typically, when you hear individuals talk about it, they're going to talk about your white blood cells. Um, so your white blood cells are encompassed by um, lymphocytes. And all of them initially start within the, the bone marrow, and then they move out of the bone marrow, and then you have what you call T cells and B cells, and then um, come out and are part of the defense against any kind of attack on your, on your body. So when we talk about uh, the difference between T cells and B cells, B cells are part of your humoral immunity, and I can explain that because that really means that, you know, you have these, um, these B cells that are produced by uh, plasma cells, and they um, are a, a component of, of how antibodies are being produced. And so when you are exposed to, let's just say, a virus, what happens is that, you know, your B cells are... Um, are activated, and they go ahead and they generate IgM and IgG antibodies. And those antibodies allow you um, to essentially clear the virus. And, um, and so that response usually, though, for the B cells takes between 7 to 14 days. And really the IgG response, which is your memory response, um, so what that means when you're talking about B cells is that you develop these antibodies um, over a period of time. Sometimes it, they can last for six months, but sometimes they can last for much, much longer years. And what will happen is when um, that same virus um, is, is seen by your immune system, then the B cells will go in and, and clear those, those viruses. Um, so that's a lot of, of why currently you hear about the fact that you have to stay quarantined if you're talking about COVID for 14 days, is that they really want to make sure that you mount these responses um, from your immune system. So for example, if we're talking about those um, antibodies, then they want to make sure you have the time to do that, um, which gets us to our um, the other part of our immune system, which is the T cell responses. And your T cell responses... Um, essentially also have, have a memory um, component. And what they do is they also can come in and they recognize um, that uh, an antigen or a virus is, is not self, meaning that, you know, they're seeing a sequence of, um, of a protein or, or peptide that doesn't match anything in your body. And so they go ahead and they, they, they recognize that and then they go um, and, and attack. So you have actually two components of T cells. One, um, well, there's actually more than two, but these are the main components of your T cells. You have helper T cells, which are CD4 um, positive cells, and then you have um, you have cytotoxic T cells. Cytotoxic T cells can go in and essentially just um, attack um, 
a virus or, or, or a bacteria um, based on that sequence and, and kill the cell. Um, and really what they're finding out right now with um, COVID-19 is that they're their theory or the thought is that the immunity um, that individuals are are um, acquiring after being exposed is more from T cells than B cells. Um, there's quite a few papers that have come out recently about that, but again, it's really early days um, in trying to figure out exactly how that immune response um, to that particular virus is mounted. So. I just want to make sure I kind of gave you guys an overview of how of how those different cell types work um, within our immune system to really um, you know fight off any kind of of, of potential threat um, that will make us sick. And so, as we move through um, and talk a little bit more, um, there's going to be some important important terms that you need to un- understand, which is when we're talking about antigens, um, those, those antigens that our immune um, cells recognize as what I, with a, you know, non-self. So it's a, it's a sequence of proteins that we don't typically see, um, or that we haven't seen before to make that clear. Those, um, our, our immune cells, um, essentially what they'll do is, um, any kind of, you know, if we're talking about a bacteria, it could be a sugar sequence in a bacteria that they're recognizing and saying, oh, I don't have that sugar sequence. And so I'm going to go and attack that. Um, so we almost, you could almost want to think of the immune system within your body constantly surveilling um, and ensuring that if there's any kind of like, you know, you know, almost like bad actors within your body because they got through your barriers, that they're getting rid of them. Because there's a concept that's really important here, which is, you know, the amount of bacteria or the amount of virus that you're exposed to has a direct correlation with how sick you're going to get. And so the quicker that the immune cells can get in there and really clear um, out those those foreign invaders, then, you know, the less sick you'll, you'll actually get, you know, for visible, observable symptoms. And so I think that people um, need to understand that based on, you know, how much you're exposed to has a direct effect on um, how sick you are. Not only is it um, that level of, of, um, of exposure um, and, and everything, but what happens is, is that even if you're exposed at a very low, um, you know, amount of a certain bacteria or virus, these cells are that specific that they, um, and with their memory can, um, essentially, since they've seen that sequence, you know, once in your life, um, they can attack at any time after that. So they will always recognize those, those, you know, sequences from what they were exposed to, um, and so again, it's it's important to to understand those concepts as we move forward through this this discussion. Um, and I think that when I'm talking about the the basics of the immune system, um, I'm hoping that that really helps out, Chris, so that you have a better understanding of you know what the basic branches of the immune system are, how they work, and then we can now get a little bit more into vaccines and why they're so important um, for us to to use within drug development to to protect against these, um, you know, essentially foreign invaders that we experience 
really on a daily basis, right? I mean, you, you have, you're exposed to bacteria, you're exposed to viruses daily. Um, and that's why we want to make sure that we have strong immune systems um, so that we can combat them uh, very quickly and, and really get, not get to that level where we're showing um, clinical, you know, observations of, of illness. Right. And so far in the news, we've heard of so many different types of vaccines coming out for COVID specifically, but even the flu vaccine that we have every year. Help me understand the different types of vaccines that we currently have in the mix for that traditional vaccine work, along with are there any advantages or disadvantages to any of them? So, Chris, I just wanted to walk you through what the different types are for different vaccines. And so we have what you call live attenuated vaccines, inactivated vaccines, uh, toxoid vaccines, as well as subunit or conjugate vaccines. And so what I'll do is I'll just go into a little bit more detail here about how these vaccines work and what are some of the advantages or disadvantages, and then slightly hit on um, safety. So some of the you know, vaccines that have been around the longest are the live attenuated vaccines. These types of vaccines contain whole bacteria or the whole sequence of the virus. And what they do is they weaken uh, the virus or the bacteria. And they do this through different means uh, to, to uh, essentially accomplish that goal. But these are vaccines that are very, very strong and have really long lasting immunity and are considered some of the, the best vaccines that we've, we've generated uh, years and years ago. And so for these types of vaccines, I mean, really the only thing is a lot of them are um, sometimes uh, manufactured or produced in eggs. So people that have egg um, allergies, uh, these would not be uh, very good. They could have an, an allergic response to them. So it's a question that any um, provider will ask you as, as you know, you're going in to get an, one of these types of vaccines. Uh, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine is um, definitely shown, you know, over the periods of time that it, it almost uh, at certain points eradicated that particular, um, those particular three types of diseases. Uh, so, so these vaccines, again, are, are extremely powerful. A great resource uh, for anyone is to also go to the CDC website because they will talk you through um, each one of these. So really for the live attenuated, there's really not that many disadvantages. Uh, really, it, besides being produced in eggs, they're extremely safe. They've been given to children and you know even adults uh, for years and years now um, and really been extremely effective in protecting the communities against these types of viruses or bacterial infections. Uh, Chris, did you have any other questions around that? Yeah, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the safety of it there. There are questions from the general public asking about side effects of the live attenuated vaccines. If I take the nasal flu vaccine, will my child get a fever from that? Is there any science to that? Yeah. So essentially what the, the attenuated live viruses are doing is they're, they're weakening um, the, the uh, essentially that form that you're being given, right? Um, so whether you have an, you know, a nasal um, uh, route of administration or you have an intramuscular injection like the MMR, 
the first thing that happens is, you know, they're intended to mount an immune response. So we go back to that discussion we just had about the immune system. And what, what happens initially is you can get a fever. Um, you, you can um, elicit um, other types of thing, uh, responses as well. So if you get an intramuscular um, injection for the MMR, typically what you'll feel is almost like a little bump. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's considered an induration, but really what that little bump is, is those are your, you know, essentially your immune cells coming to that point, um, and, and trying to attack, um, that if it's like at the MMR, it's trying to attack that, that sequence that it sees again. So I think, but the, the number one thing to remember about this is those effects are very transient. They typically occur within the first 24 hours. If you ever have any concerns, um, the number one thing your pediatrician should say, if it's um, child, but an adult too, you know, they can take Tylenol or, or ibuprofen so that it really dampens any of those responses that are seen. Um, but again, you know, you do want to get the best immune response you can. So, um, so again, I think uh, hopefully that addressed your question. So we can move on to inactivated viruses um, and bacteria. And so some great examples of, of that would be polio. Um, polio, is the, the vaccine has probably been the most effective at completely eradicating a disease. And um, another member of this group is Hep A vaccines as well as rabies. And um, so we all know really at this point for rabies, um, you bring your dogs in and they get their rabies vaccination. Um, and that's mainly to protect them if they're exposed to like a bat um, or, you know, um, I think mostly it's bats that carry rabies. Um, so, so the difference between the live attenuated vaccines and the inactivated is that um, the virus essentially let's say it's a virus, you're growing it into cells. This is how you're, you're um, essentially making it. And then you go ahead and you purify it from the cells. And um, what you do is you just completely kill it through means of like, maybe it's a chemical mean or it's UV or something like that. So you're going to go in and you're just going to completely um, kill the ability of, of that virus um, to, to um, cause you any harm. And what it is, though, is it does maintain those, again, those sequences. Um, and so what they can do is they can take um, those inactivated viruses or bacteria, and then they can, you know, essentially deliver that um, as a vaccine and um, you utilize um, that process uh, instead of the attenuated um, live vaccine. And, um, and then your, your immune system, again, will mount a response to those sequences um, and, and you'll build up the, that protection. So that's really the difference between the inactivated and the live attenuated. And then what we have is the toxoid um, type vaccines that, um, so this would be such as diphtheria and tetanus. And this is another um, vaccine that we all get when we're younger. It's part of the vaccinations that you um, have to have, you know, to, to essentially um, to go to school. Um, so these type uh, of vaccines are against these type, very specific bacterial illnesses. Um, they, again, aim to elicit that immune response against um, these proteins or toxins. So the difference here in this type of um, vaccine is it's, they take the, the antigens from the toxin um, and then they chem chemically inactivate it. Um, so 
So it's the same as I was just describing, except for the, instead of, you know, a virus or bacteria, the starting, the source is um, components of a, of a toxin. Um, and so, and those are uh, chemicals, right? So, um, so it's a little bit different because it's not derived from a protein. And then the last is you have the subunit. Um, so this is the category where you would have like pertussis, hep B, and HPV. So subunit vaccines include only the components or antigens that best stimulate the immune system. And what that means is that if you're exposed to um, a virus, it doesn't mean that your immune system responds the same way to all the different components. Um, a really great example of that is with COVID-19 right now, where if you hear in the news, they're talking about the different subunits, the spike proteins. Um, and so these are like, you know, there's all these different components of that particular virus and your immune system responds differently to those components. So for these subunit or conjugate vaccines, what they do is they test all of that and they see which um, sequence does your uh, immune system respond the strongest to? Um, and they'll look at T cell immunity as well as B cell immunity. And so they're going to make and they're going to engineer um, that particular vaccine to, to, to the, the sequence that has the strongest response. Um, and a, an example of that was whooping cough, um, where, you know, they, after the, the 70s, they went ahead and they um, developed a, a more advanced generation of that vaccine um, that was really the purified uh, pertussis components. And they saw a lot less side effects. And so when you talk about safety, Chris, this is an example of that. They had previous versions of the pertussis vaccine, but people would have fever or, or a lot more swelling at injection sites. And so by changing to the subunit type of vaccine, they were able to get rid of those components um, that were causing, you know, these are not harmful effects, but they were definitely uncomfortable, right? And so um, by doing that, then more people were willing to get the vaccine because it's not as scary because they don't see these other types of side effects or adverse reactions. Chris, also, we can talk about um, Gardasil. Have you heard of Gardasil, Chris? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, so Gardasil is a vaccine Um that was made uh, against uh, HPV. So that's human papillomavirus. Uh, so if you're not aware, um, you know, the human papillomavirus can, once you're exposed to it at a younger age, um, can result in certain types of cancers. And a lot of these cancers really um, were quite frequent, especially in women when we're talking about um, cervical cancer or when any um, females were exposed to genital warts, um, you know, it can also, you know, result in some of these types of cancers that are the result of being um, infected by HPV when you're at a, at a young age. Um, so Gardasil is um, essentially a, a vaccine that really revolutionized uh, women's health. I mean, if you think about that, right? And, and even men's health, because sometimes what happens is if you are exposed to HPV as a, as a young adult um, and, um, you know, later in your life, uh, a lot of cancers that men would get was uh, squamous cell cancers. They're actually quite deadly. 
you go ahead and you vaccinate with, with this drug. Um, I can tell you, um, this was, um, this was actually first developed by a company, uh, in Australia, um, called CSL and they really, um, they did a great service to, to everyone. And what happens with Gardasil is it works to stimulate the immune system to attack um, four different types of HPV, so 6, 11, 16, and 18. And once it's administered, um, the, and it, it's viral proteins because, again, it's the subunit type of vaccine. So it's made up of all the you know specific subunits of those four types that have been shown to you know get the best immune response. Um, and essentially, like so far, it's it's really been effective. So amongst teen girls, infections with HPV types that can cause HPV cancers and genital warts has dropped 86%. Among adult women, infection with HPV types that cause most HPV cancers and genital warts dropped um, 71%. And then um, for vaccinated women, the percentage of cervical precancers caused by these types, um, so HPV, resulted in a drop of 40% in cervical cancer. Um, so these are things, you know, that um, really are successful outcomes from, you know, I mean, as we walk through, we started with the live attenuated, then we went, you know, to the um, the next, uh, which is the, you know, killing essentially of the, the, the virus and using that um, and, and, and using that for the vaccine to the subunits, um, which, you know, are even more, you know, building in that engineering for much more robust response from the immune system. So Chris, did, did you know all of that? I did not know all of that. <laughs> so for the flu vaccine that we get every year, which one of those categories would that fall under? Um, so for the, the standard flu vaccine, it falls under... Uh, the subunits typically. So um, those are the more recent uh, flu vaccines. Okay. And can you explain to, to us, the audience, why do we need a flu vaccine every year where some of the other, the MMR, the chicken pox, a lot of those vaccines are a, a one-time shot when, when you're a child? Right. So, um, so the, the flu is a different type of virus and there are different versions essentially of the flu that come out every single season. So again, when we talked about your, um, your immune responses, they are different, right? Because what'll happen is, is if you're exposed to one version of the flu and then it essentially mutates, um, let's say you get the flu vaccine in October and we have one strain of flu that comes out like uh, influenza A, you know, that was what the flu vaccine was generated to. Um, then, you know, specifically, let's just say that specific example. Um, then what happens is, is that you probably will have about six months of protection. And that's literally because the flu is, is changing um, over time. So every single year, the, the companies and the manufacturers are trying to essentially predict what type of flu is going to be um, within the environment um, that they need to protect us from. So they're always trying to stay one step ahead. Um, it's usually, it's, it's very much controlled by like, the CDC and the World Health Organization, where they're, you know, they have labs that are constantly looking at what strains of the flu are are out there. Um, and they 
they use a lot of different mechanisms to do that. Um, I don't even know if everyone really understands that, but they do a lot of surveillance um, in animals. They um, also, you know, look at, um, you know, human uh, data. And what they'll do then is, um, you know, they usually come up with the flu vaccine for a period of a year. Uh, but again, when we get the vaccine, sometimes even people go and get a vaccine in October and then they'll go get a vaccine uh, more in the springtime as well to to just increase that protection uh, against the flu strains that are um, out in that particular year. But the vaccines that come from the different companies, they're all using the suggested strains for that flu season? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so an important Distinction, uh, Chris, is that, you know, we saw this with H1N1. So H1N1 was a uh, strain of the flu that was extremely dangerous and caused a lot of adverse effects within individuals that were exposed to the flu. So there are essentially differences in each flu strain every single year, some of which you know, some physicians will say, oh, it's not really that bad of a flu season uh, because the flu that year, how it's mutated, is just not as strong and it does not cause as many um, infections uh, as opposed to, you know, the year that we saw H1N1 or the swine flu. And, you know, it, it really transmitted between individuals quite rapidly, uh, individuals that were exposed to H1N1, got extremely ill. There are many hospitalizations. And, you know, they did see those, you know, the pneumonia, the resp- respiratory issues. Uh, and so so those types of, of years uh, and with the flu, um, you know, it really is why we have to have a flu vaccine, you know, every year where they're trying to predict um, what strain we're going to see to try to protect as many people as possible, especially the elderly population. Um, similar to COVID, the elderly population is also impacted by the the flu va- or the flu viruses, and so it's really important that they get the flu vaccines each year, whether or not they get them just once a year or multiple times a year to protect them through the fall and um, summer months. Usually, those are the highest for for the flu. And one of the things that is uh, really interesting, too, is um, each of the areas and hospitals keep track of that. So they keep track of every single case um, for the flu that comes in, whether or not they test them for the flu or not, because they're trying to look at, you know, how many individuals within a community and it's down to the the county level um, are exposed to the flu so that, again, they can start tracking and getting samples so that they can start to look at what type of flu is really prevalent that year. Dr. Satterwhite's breadth of knowledge about vaccine development is impressive, and her ability to explain the science in such a straightforward way is really a gift. With so much in the news currently about the work to develop a COVID vaccine, her overview underscores the importance of truly understanding a vaccine's effectiveness and safety before recommending mass immunization. There's always been a fascination about the various approaches to vaccine development, But what truly amazes me are the new approaches to vaccines that work to prevent cancer. Chris took the opportunity to ask Tina more about that. And there's all these different variables with the flu vaccine, but how does that work? So 
now that we talked about uh, the flu and why we get the flu vaccine um, each year, uh, there's also other ways that, you know, we utilize vaccines. Um, and so we kind of just walk through, you know, traditional vaccines that, you know, either are produced within eggs or, you know, they're cell-based or we even went into some of the re recombinant vaccine production um, techniques. And so, you know, all of these vaccines that we just talked about were truly for, for protection against, you know, viruses and uh, bacteria that over history have been, have been quite, um, you know, dangerous. And so, but we use them for those, you know, for that protection. Um, but there are other uses for vaccines, uh, Chris. Can you tell us more about that? What are these other use cases? So, what I wanted to talk to you about were some of the cancer immunotherapies. And within cancer immunotherapy, um, one of the types of, of drugs uh, that are engineered are vaccines. And um, really, these, these vaccines are doing the same exact thing, thing that we just talked about by, you know, stimulating your immune system. Um, but, but now what we're trying to do is we're trying to stimulate the immune system, not to fight a, a pathogen like a bacteria um, or a virus, but we're utilizing our immune systems to attack cancer. And so, what happens with cancer is that, you know, you have to remember a, a virus and a bacteria are non-self. We've talked about how the immune system sees everything that, you know, is part of your own body as itself, but it sees any kind of foreign invader um, like a bacteria and a virus um, as a um essentially as a non-self. Um, so it'll see like a sugar sequence on the bacteria or a sequence in the virus that, that doesn't quite fit. However, if you think about cancer, where does cancer come from, Chris? Our, our own bodies. That's right. So, um, so it comes from our own bodies. And because of that, then our immune system can have a hard time recognizing that sequence um, essentially as non-self. Or what can happen is it initially recognizes it as non-self, but then cancer cells are extremely smart. You know, they, they exactly, they, um, they almost cloak themselves to our immune system. And so really these, these cancer immunotherapies, um, these are, you know, have been really expanding over the last, you know, five to eight years. And a big, um, Part of that has been trying to look at vaccines and, you know, can we use the same technology that we've used for this protection, um, you know, against various diseases that we're, um, that we're exposed to, to actually fight cancer, which is a disease that's, that's um, our, really is our own self. And, it, you know, there's a lot of reasons that individuals get cancer, but every single cancer cell is your own cell. It just transforms and when that goes through that transformation and it, it replicates and it replicates essentially out of control. Um, and so that's where you get, you know, different types of cancers that are more like blood disorders, like lymphoma, or you have solid tumors um, that, that are the result of that one cell um, dividing incorrectly and then um, forming cancer. Um, so again, what vaccines, um, do in this area is that if we talked about, um, you know, these antigens, 
what happens on a, on a cancer cell is that you have proteins or sequences that are being expressed onto the cancer cell um, that, again, you wouldn't see in a normal, humi- uh, healthy <laughs> individual. And so you can use those antigen sequences to essentially build a vaccine to that particular cancer. And then they're trying to utilize um, those vaccines uh, to to stimulate that immune system, um, uncloak the cancer cell, and get a really robust immune response um, from yourself. And what they have to do to make that work is they have to be able to have um, the immune system see that cell as non-self. So again, I think in this area, um, the engineering is getting better and better every single year, but there really hasn't been a smoking gun that's come out um, in regards to vaccines that has uh, truly um, shown a lot of, um, uh, they call them, you know, it's effectiveness, right? So efficacious. Uh, so we'll see in the next generation of these types of drugs whether or not, you know, we see uh, more impact from them uh, versus um the other existing cancer immunotherapies uh, that have been um, approved over the last 10 years. And, you know, you mentioned that some of this is a pretty new technology that that they're going with for cancer immunotherapies. Are there any cancers right now, specific cancers that are that have a vaccine or immunotherapy for yes, them? Yes, there is. Available? Yeah, so there's one um, treatment that was approved in 2010. Um, and it was for prostate cancer, and it's called um, Prevenge. Uh, that particular um, vaccine is is pretty much one of the, the the first ones that got approved by the FDA. And, and I'm assuming the earlier the stage of cancer, the better these immunotherapies will work. Right, and the best thing would be to have more protective vaccines, right? So if we can link um, viruses to more cancers. Or you know, then I think we'll be in a much better place to actually protect, um, as opposed to wait until you already have cancer, and then try to administer a vaccine that then has to um, be able to, like I said, uncloak those antigens so your immune system sees them as non-self, and then they'll be more effective. But there's like there's been a lot of different um, issues um, that these vaccines for cancer immunotherapy have had to overcome. Um, to be, you know, to get to that level of being more effective. Um, so I think that there's some more engineering that needs to happen there. Um, hopefully over the next several years, we'll see another approval um, of, a, of a vaccine in this area. Okay. And speaking of vaccines that we want to see sooner and later is COVID. Let's talk more about what we have right now. There's a lot of news surrounding the phase three clinical trials. What do we have out there for the foreseeable future? Yeah, so um, for the the foreseeable future, I think that um, we are uh, really in a a state where um, we have a lot of drugs uh, in the different phases of of drug development. Um, I think it was at the beginning of March, you know, there was really a call to all of the biotech and pharmaceutical companies to really focus a lot of their effort um, to to get these um, to get a vaccine or a, a more novel vaccine uh, to get approved as quickly as possible. So I think we've all heard about, you know, Operation Warp Speed. It was really pulling together every um, 
all the pharmaceutical biotech comp- companies as well as manufacturing and support um, to to really you know devise a plan that they could get these drugs to market as quickly as possible. Um, so I just looked it up today. As of today, there, uh, according to the World Health Organization, there was you know 34 million confirmed cases of COVID. Um, and as we move into the fall season, you know, as you can see, like it's going to be super important that we have um, hopefully a vaccine uh, by the end of the year because now we're going to have you know uh, potentially. Uh, more issues because we're getting into the flu season. And then if we have like uh, additional infections with COVID, um, it would be uh, definitely ideal to have a vaccine that can, that can um, fight that. So right now in phase three, uh, there were five um, current vaccines. Uh, And so if you kind of think about this from, you know, March till now, so it's, it's October to have five, um, different types of vaccines in phase three clinical trials is actually tremendous. Um, you know, I think that the, the individuals that have been working on these, you know, at the pharmaceutical and biotech companies have really, um, been working extremely hard over the last several months, um, to get these drugs as far as they have so far within, um, the clinical drug development process. Uh, so, for example, you know we hear a lot about Moderna. Um, they have a lot a novel mRNA vaccine that's in phase three um, as of July. Um, and again, when we talked about the different types of vaccines, and we talked about cancer immunotherapy, the mRNA vaccine that they have at that company is you know the next generation of, of vaccine. So that's really using um, you know. DNA and, and, you know, RNA sequences. Um, so, you know, very specific um, to generate vaccines. So we'll see how some of these vaccines, um, you know, go through. Uh, another, um, you know, example is Pfizer. They have an mRNA vaccine as well. Um, and they're in phase two, three. Um, so we'll see. They, they have high hopes uh, that they'll actually conclude a lot of their um, clinical trials here by the end of October, and then be able to submit their data uh, for the approval process. Um, and then we have other vaccines that have come out that are um, really developed DNA technologies that use, um, again, different types of platforms. So not just the mRNA, but DNA. Um, and then we have, you know, more traditional vaccines as well, where they're looking at you know, just subunit sequences um, to to uh, to utilize the the you know more traditional technology, um, and um, but really, I think right now when you look at you know those five um, vaccines that are in the um, essentially in that phase three, there's a mix of these like newer technologies and then the older. Um, technologies for vaccines. Um, so one of the things that's that's important to note is that, you know, sometimes in, when they're looking at drugs and how safe they are, if we're using the more traditional path um, of, you know, utilizing uh, antigen sequences and then um, known adjuvants, and I don't think I really hit on what adjuvants are, but adjuvants are um, a part of the formulation of the vaccine that also is there to additionally stimulate or boost your immune system. 
So if you're using um, that same formulation that's been used previously, which is exactly how, what they do with the flu vaccine typically every year, they're using the same uh, formulation, they're just changing sequences, right? Um, so they already know that the formulation is safe. So if you just change the sequence, you should be able to go through that pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, that's another thing is some of these drugs, when they're looking at it and they're more traditional, um, they may, you know, be able to move through the approval process quicker. Um, I don't really know because uh, we don't know what the packages are for some of the newer technologies and how they're being submitted or what data they have. Um, but, but um they might have just more questions by the FDA because they are newer uh, types of drugs as opposed to those traditional vaccines. And I think there's something like, as of today, 46 current, you know, vaccines in clinical trials. And I think there's 96 in preclinical testing, to give you an idea. That's a pretty large, you know, that's a pretty sizable um, number of potential new drugs for a virus that we only found out about in January. Yeah, and we learned from our our last episode that you know the traditional time it would take a vaccine is is you know in that ten to fifteen year range. So this is uh, quite a departure from that. Correct. Yep. But I mean, I think that you know as we you know move through um, and you know everyone gets a chance to look at the data. The other big part of a phase three clinical trial is to make sure that you know the drug actually works and that it will protect. Right. So that'll be a big part of of the evaluation of the data. Tina, again, thanks so much for taking the time to explain immune mechanisms and for sharing your expertise with us at Vital Science. Yeah, Chris, I really appreciate um, you having me come and um, and talk about something that I'm extremely passionate about. Uh, I hope that you you know learned a little bit more about uh, the immune system and about vaccines. I know that you know every single day right now. Um, I know it's a, a topic of conversation for me with uh, my family, my friends, people in the community are very, very curious and want to make sure that they understand how viruses um, work, why is COVID so bad, and why is it different. And so I think that really taking us through this history and how how the immune system works uh, will really make things a lot more clear for you. And I think you did that today. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vital Science. You've heard Dr. Satterwhite talk about the incredible number of COVID vaccines currently in clinical trials. But what did it take to get them there? Join us next month for the third episode in our vaccine series, where we get down to the business of accelerating vaccine development. We'll hear from our own Dr. Lauren Black, a former FDA regulator and current scientific advisor, who will share some insight into this process. Have questions or comments about anything you heard today? Reach out to us at vitalscience@crl.com. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. I'm Gina Mullane. Thanks for listening.